Father, indeed, we are people who search for ways of pleasing the God that we love. We are people who have failed you last week. We need nobody to tell us how often and how grievously we failed you. We understand it more than or better than anyone else in this room. But Father, what we're searching for now are ways to please you. Forgive us our sin. You have promised if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, as cleansed sons and daughters, we come now to search out those ways that will bring you glory forevermore. Oh God, we have, we have for too long sought uh, the wrong things and they have done nothing but bring us pain. We have for too long, oh God, thought that we had solutions for life when in fact we had so very few. And so we come, O God, to ask that by the power and might of your Holy Spirit that you will make us into people that are bringing you fresh supplies of glory and pleasure. We stand here, O God, as men and women who are called to magnify the Lord, to make Him bigger in a culture that sees Him as so very small if existent at all. And so, O oh God, the, the, the charge that you've given us, the commission that you have given unto us is to magnify the glory of God. And so we, we take to your challenge, O oh God, knowing that it is only by the power and might of the Holy Spirit that anything for, that lasts forever will be accomplished. Use us, O oh God. Use people with all in the midst of all of our failings but use people just like us whose hearts are warm towards you, O oh God, and we ask you to warm them even more as we worship. Thank you for this opportunity to give. We are people who understand that we have, we have gotten, we have been given to, we have an ability to make wealth that you entrusted us. And so now it's our privilege and our joy to give back. We want every dime to be used for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. So, Father, we give today according to the way that we've been blessed, hoping you will never have to bless us according to the way that we give. We give for your glory, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And the flower fades. But the word of our God, oh, my friend in Christ, is something that endures forever. If you're uh, new to Gracie Van, let me tell you what you've just stumbled into. Uh, a series, a summer-long series concerning a topic, and the topic is how we might be better uh, enabled to reach a lost and dying world. You know our philosophy of ministry is to reach an unchurched world through maturing believers. And so I've set aside this summer to try and address something entitled, How to Build an Irresistible Testimony. Things that might, could, might be true of us, that would make us more um, winsome and more uh, full of impact to a world who has not yet met our Christ. And so I've been adding things on top of one another concerning how to build an irresistible testimony for all of us. This morning, I read a text that I said um, I use in every funeral that I do. Um, I use it because it makes reference, of course, to the second coming of Christ. 
And uh, it is also a text that contains a reference to the rapture, which is about the only place I know of in the Bible that does mention the rapture, but the second coming is mentioned several times. But my purpose this morning, or my, my subject this morning, has nothing to do with the second coming nor the rapture. Actually, I'd like for you to focus only on one half of one verse in that passage. So if you've still got your Bibles open, I'd like for you to look with me at verse 13b. Um, I'll read you the whole verse. But I'm only concentrating on the last nine words. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Here it is. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a Christian way to sorrow, to display, or to walk through sorrow. And I'm convinced that one of our best means, the best tools of evangelism in our hands, is how you and I, as people who are related to God through faith in Christ, how it is that you and I endure trial. Suffering, pain, call it what you like. There's lots of words that really are aiming at the same thing. I'm simply saying there is a Christian way to do that. Um, Paul, in this passage, has a concern that these Christians be comforted in the midst of their sorrows. And so do I, ladies and gentlemen. But I have another concern. My other concern here is that you and I redeem our sorrow. We redeem it in such a way that God gets glory from our walking through whatever it, whatever it is that He's put on our plate. There, this is a huge subject, ladies and gentlemen. If you know anything about your Bibles, you know that this is mentioned hundreds of times. That is, Christians and their... And they're walking through difficulty. And there's a lot said, um, a lot written about the subject, a lot that is uh, available to you about the subject. And believe me, ladies and gentlemen, uh, what is available to you uh, by way of books is probably a whole lot better than what you're going to hear this morning. I want to mention one book that if you uh, have any interest in this subject, this is a must-read. Larry Crabb's Shattered Dreams, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it is... Excellent, but uh, very, uh, as I said, much better treatment of the subject than what you're going to hear this morning. But I have a slant this morning, a slant on the subject, as, and my slant is how God might use our suffering to convince non-Christians that there is a qualitative difference, a qualitative difference between... Christians and non-Christians, and one way that it is so clearly seen is in how you and I, as the people of God, bear up under the things that he puts on our plates. Steve Brown is, as you know, one of my heroes, and Steve Brown is, saying, is, is very fond of saying that for every non-Christian that gets cancer, a Christian gets cancer, so that we can prove to the world there's a difference in who we are and who they are. Now, I don't know whether he's right, ladies and gentlemen, about that very uncomfortable statistic, but the idea is a good one. A watching world 
having the opportunity to get to see God's people bearing up under the same things that they face. And gang, may I say to you, uh, Christians are no more immune to suffering than are non-Christians. But they get to see us facing the same things they face in a qualitatively different way. I can tell you, my friends, that the Bible promises you, <laughs> promises you, undeserved suffering. And you and I are not called simply to suffer, but we're called to suffer well. And uh, that suffering well is a, is a tool, I think, that you and I can have available to us to demonstrate the supernatural, to demonstrate that there's something different about the way a non-Christian and a way a Christian handles their pain. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that way uh, in, a, in a few minutes. But first I want to tell you something that I hope has not escaped your attention. Christianity is no fairy tale, ladies and gentlemen. You know what a fairy tale is. A fairy tale is something about a good person who encounters some kind of pain and uh, is wondrously delivered from all of her or his pain and, live a, and lives a life happily ever after. Well, ladies and gentlemen, everybody likes that model <laughs> because it contains, it minimizes pain. I like that model. But you must understand that that is not what Christianity has offered. Christianity makes you no such promise. Life is hard. It's hard for all of us, ladies and gentlemen. It's hard for the Christian. It's hard for the non-Christian. So if we're uh, surprised by pain, we don't need to look any further than ourselves for blame. Because the Bible never said anything fairy tale like Suffering shouldn't surprise us. God's commitment to us, ladies and gentlemen is to not make us happy. He's far more comfortable about our, far more interested in our concern, than he, uh, in our character, than he is our comfort. But this desire to be happy seems to be the goal of just about all of us. And somehow along the way, we got the impression or the notion that that's what being a Christian should be. One life experience of being happy. And though that's not God's commitment to it, it certainly seems to be ours. We just can't help ourselves, can we? From wanting to be happy. Now, ladies and gentlemen, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that to be a Christian is to be unhappy. As if I'm saying, why don't you come to Christ and have a lifetime of unhappiness? I'm not saying that. I'm saying Christians are supposed to be happy. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says that one of the greatest sins among Christians is that we're not happy. But what I am saying is that you and I have turned happiness into the goal instead of the desire. 
And there's a vast difference, ladies and gentlemen. There's a vast difference between a goal and a desire. And that's where the difference between how a non-Christian and how a Christian handles his sufferings begin. Let me, let me tell you just a little bit about goals and the desires. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, goals are things that I need to set for myself that I alone am in charge of accomplishing. For instance, if I say my goal is to marry Barbara, well, that's an illegitimate goal, ladies and gentlemen, because Barbara's going to have a say in that. I can only have a goal that I alone am responsible for accomplishing. Now, I can have a desire and pray towards my desire that Barbara will fall in love with me and marry me. I hope she won't because I'm pretty much in love with the one I'm married to now. But I can pray towards my desires. But I can never turn a desire into a goal. Now, guys, that's what we've done with happiness. It no longer is a desire of ours. It is our lifelong pursuit. And we're supposed to know, that is, as Christians, we're supposed to know that our existence is not about obtaining some sort of state of perpetual happiness. In fact, we're supposed to know that this life is not about us at all. It's not about us, ladies and gentlemen. The, the, the universe doesn't revolve around us. It's not supposed to be about us. God has saved us and brought us to Himself to so that He Himself might receive glory. He has not brought us to Himself so that we might feel good about ourselves and lead some kind of exciting life. That's our goal. That's their goal. And our goal is supposed to be different. Our goal is not about uh, obtaining and achieving some state of perpetual happiness. Our goal is supposed to be that God gets glory. Not about us. That's a significant difference, ladies and gentlemen. A significant difference between a Christian and a non-Christian and how they manage their pain. And I think one of the reasons that we don't manage it very well is because we miss that point. God made no commitment to you to make you happy. He's far more concerned about your character than he is your comfort. The goal of life for the Christian and the non-Christian ought to be dramatically Different. But secondly, if that is so, and it is, what is it that would bring God most glory? Would it bring Him most glory if He were to provide for me some kind of fairy tale existence? That, ladies and gentlemen, would be to, would be to turn God's into a, God into a means to an end. His job is to make me happy. Or would it bring more glory to God if through my sufferings I'm transformed into the image of Christ? You see, gang, the goal of suffering 
and difficulty is his glory. The reason for difficulty and pain is for transformation. We're supposed to be being transformed even by that stuff that so hurts. Don't you hate pain? Gang, all of us hate pain. I know when, when I'm in it. But that the only thing that consumes my, my thoughts or how can I get to a place where it's lessened somehow. But ladies and gentlemen, even though what I'm about to say is, uh, is a grudging admission, I, I admit that. What I'm about to say is a grudging admission. But I do admit, and I think you would too if you're honest, nothing transforms me more deeply than do my sufferings. I wish that weren't so. I don't like that truth. I wish there was another way to transform me deeply. Maybe by giving me free coupons to the marble slab. Maybe that would do it. But ladies and gentlemen, you would know as well as I that the thing that transforms me most deeply and readily is my pain. So, ladies and gentlemen, suffering, dare I say it? Suffering is necessary. Grudgingly admitted, but admitted nonetheless. Pain is a softening agent, ladies and gentlemen. A softening agent like nothing else. Without pain, only spoiled brats would enter heaven. And, and, and what, what Christian is there that exists out there that doesn't want to be transformed? I think you all do. We all do. We want to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. The bad news is, ladies and gentlemen, we're, so, we're all so charmed by sin that transformation can only be wrought by pain. It's, it's pain that breaks that spell that sin seems to have over us. Prosperity doesn't do that, does it? It doesn't do it. Gang, um, in terms of how Christians suffer versus non-Christians, the goal and the reason are vastly different. The goal, God's glory. The reason, my transformation. And that ought to set us apart. It ought to set us as a people apart from the non-Christian world that does not have that goal and does not have that reason. There's one other thing, ladies and gentlemen, that I think is utterly key. Um, if you and I are ever going to handle these circumstances with some kind of winsomeness and some kind of perseverance, 
there's a huge key. There is an absolute bottom line, I think. If we are to, like Paul has admonished us here, to suffer as, not like the rest of them, but suffer as people with, who have hope, if we are to endure with hope, then there is an absolute peace of essentiality. Let's kind of let's kind of uh, creep up on it. But first of all, there's a quote from Oswald Chambers who says, "The root of sin is unbelief in the goodness of God." I heard somebody else define faith as confidence that God is good. What I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, is the key to redeeming our sufferings is this. You and I must be convinced that everything that God permits in my life, He does so for the purpose of drawing me closer to Himself. We must believe that. We must believe that if, that if we're ever to find hope in the midst of our strugglings, then everything that we have that we experience has been brought into our lives by a God who is good. If we are ever to be transformed when everything that we've loved has been ripped away from us or our, our hearts are broken with some kind of indescribable pain, we must believe that a good God who has made us for Himself is authoring something. He is, he is allowing a set of circumstances to overtake us for the purpose of drawing us closer to Himself. Do you, my brother and sister in Christ, believe that? Do you believe that? That everything that I experience as a Christian is designed to draw me closer to Do you believe that? Fundamental life. It's the key, in my opinion. Elizabeth Elliot tells a story. You know who Elizabeth Elliot is. She's the one who lost her husband to the Aka Indians, I think in 1952. But uh, he was, they were missionaries in um, South America, and they, five men were killed. Her husband was one of them, and, and um, her husband was such a champion. Um wrote a book called The Shadow of the Almighty, Elizabeth. But anyway, Elizabeth tells this story about being in northern Wales on a sheep farm. And uh, she's watching the shepherds deal with their sheep and all that business. And one of the things that one of them is doing is that he has a large vat, a large vat of some kind of antiseptic liquid that he takes each sheep and he dips the sheep into the vat that's supposed to kill all the fleas and the lice and all the foreign things that are on their skin. And so he takes sheep by sheep and puts them in this vat and then takes their head and, you know, punches it or pushes it down underneath that. And you can see the little sheep coming up there, you know, and just little trying. And she, uh, she was walking away rather amused and she said, you know, <laughs> I, I wonder what it must feel like to think that your shepherd is trying to kill you. paused and said I know how that feels 
I know how it feels when the God who saved me at times allows things into my life and I think He's trying to kill me. So what is it, ladies and gentlemen, that sustains me in the midst of thinking that the God who saved me is now trying to kill me? Friends, God did not make me so that I could be a preacher. He didn't make me to be a husband. He didn't make me to be a father. He made me to be a worshiper. He's created me to be someone that finds my greatest delight in himself. One of the tools that he uses is pain. You know, strangely enough, I, I know that you've experienced this too, but it is in the midst of my pain that I find myself longing for him more than ever before. Not his blessings, not what he can give me, but just Him. Prayer and worship become my favorite things to do. I want to read you a little poem. I'm not good at poetry, but I want to read you this one. I thought it was somewhat apropos. If my life were full of sunshine with never a rainy day, I wonder how I'd greet my Lord and just how much I'd pray. If all were peace and happiness with never a stormy sea, I wonder would I live as close and could he speak to me? If my heart were never broken and never a tear I'd shed, would I search his word for comfort and let my soul be fed? If through life I knew no sorrow, if my body felt no pain, would I long for heaven's glory and his coming back again? My father knows the answer. He all my weakness sees. So perhaps he sends the storm clouds just to drive me to my knees so that I may fully trust him, feel secure from all that harms, so that I may feel beneath me his everlasting arms. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, I have no question about the answer to those questions. I know that I wouldn't seek him because sin is dear to me. You know, ladies and gentlemen, in the midst of what I uh, and my wife have experienced in the last 18 months, and it's not over, I sense I'm more alive, more true to how I've been designed than ever before. And it's all been brought about. some of these. Steve Brown also was fond of saying 
When you learn to kiss the rod, the rod of his discipline, when you learn to kiss the rod, he will put it away. I don't know whether that's true either. But ladies and gentlemen, we'll never kiss his rod, his disciplinary rod, until we're utterly convinced that he is good. Every sorrow, ladies and gentlemen, that you ever experience will be used by the Holy Spirit to deepen your desire for God. And that's good. Now, having heard all that, I'd like for you to take your Bibles and I'd like for you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're just about finished. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I want you to follow as I read verses 9 and 10. And then they might make some sense. Or now they might make some sense, I hope. And he said to me, that is, he said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, ladies and gentlemen, the most unreasonable words ever spoken in the Bible, I think, are right here. Therefore, I take pleasure. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. For Christ's sake. Because I know, says Paul, when I'm weak, that I'm strong. St. Teresa of Avila Another one of those saints of 600 years ago. She said, The first moment we're in heaven, the first moment we're in the arms of Jesus, the very first moment I sense His presence, it is going to make a thousand years of misery on on earth look like one night in a bad hotel. Paul says it this way, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, you and I are not called simply to suffer. We're called to suffer well. Let's pray. Our Father, I do ask you to, by the power and might of the indwelling Spirit, to lift our hearts to the place where we might smile at our infirmities,
and just know a modicum of what it means to take pleasure in the very things that we think are about to kill us. So that we might be made healthier, more transformed, more powerful, recognizing how weak we are. Father, if you have led people in here today who do not know Jesus Christ, might they be able to watch us in our difficulties and see something so different that they might long to know who we know and have what we have because they see how different is our experience than is theirs. For those who have come here, O oh God, who you've led perhaps who do not know Jesus Christ, might they sense somewhat of an apology from all of us who have so failed you because we long for them to see our Savior and we haven't given them a very good display. Might some of that change as we all try to build irresistible testimonies in the hopes that you will use us to reach men who have not yet met our Savior. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.